This is the Fire These Times, and I'm your host, Joey Ayub. Hello everyone, welcome to the Fire These Times, a podcast about fires, political fires, and bad stuff, sometimes good stuff. Last time I had the two of you on, last time I had the two of you on, uh, and I'll ask you to kind of do some brief interest in a sec, we spoke about Armenianness and sort of the intersection of everything from like the, the specificities about the diasporas and how that changed from place to place and the relationship between uh, many Armenians, let's say, and countries like Russia or Iran or Lebanon or whatever, and obviously Turkey and so on. Now we're, uh, we are going to talk about something much more specific, unfortunately, um, unfortunately because of what's happening, obviously. We are recording this on the 3rd of October. What has happened is very much, I don't even know how to describe it because like the UN has, uh, I'm going to read some statements in a sec. First, let's start with some intros because that's the professional thing to do. And I am a professional. Let's start with some intros. I don't know, alphabetically, whatever, Anna and then Karina. For those who have not listened to the previous episode, which obviously they should, but some people are not good people. So we have to also address these people. Can you introduce yourselves, please? Okay. My name is Anna. Uh, I and me and Karina have a podcast, which is currently on hiatus, called Obscuristan. Um, I am a law student and Armenian. Hi, everybody. I am Karina. I am a senior analyst now at the Regional Center for Democracy and Security, which is a little tiny... Uh, bespoke think tank based in Yerevan um, and I'm also Armenian and hi okay this is one of those topics that I don't even know how to you know how to even start approaching it because we were talking just before recording that uh, I had the Guardian's website the Guardian.com's website open to the Europe live section and they have statements that are quite if, even if you just stick to like the bullet points that they have the summaries at the top there's like Quite incredible statements if, they, if you put them next to one another, I think encapsulates, maybe not perfectly, but to some extent, a bit of the absurdity of the situation in addition, in addition to the situation being horrific. And I will obviously ask you to, to, the, to, the, you know, to the best of your abilities to even explain wh what the hell is even happening. I can start. Um, for those of you who didn't listen to the rest of to, to the last episode, and also for the people who did listen to it, I realized that we talked a lot about Artsakh, but we really didn't fully introduce what it was. So. The region that you're going to hear a lot about that like is experiencing refugee crisis right now is Nagorno-Karabakh. Nagorno-Karabakh used to be an autonomous region in the Soviet Union. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, they declared independence um, from the uh, Republic of Azerbaijan, which was the successor state to the Soviet Socialist Republic of Azerbaijan. They'd actually tried to rejoin Soviet Armenia uh, during the entire time they were ruled by the Soviet uh, during the entire Soviet period because they cited severe ethnic repression. And essentially, when the Soviet Union fell, the Armenians, the ethnic Armenians living in this region, said to the broader like global community and also to like those who were trying to draw the borders that you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You like we cannot live safely under this, an Azerbaijani government. This government, this state entity is espousing hatred against us. They've already cleansed us out of Baku and Sumgait, which were cities where Armenians used to live and were pogromed out of. And effectively, they fought a war for their independence during the, after the fall of the Soviet Union. And they won that war and they were able to establish a state. That state is called the Republic of Artsakh, or was called the Republic of Artsakh, unfortunately. It was, a it was you know, struggling, like, fucked up democracy, as we all are. And it was, it existed in the region for the last 30 years. It was considered a frozen conflict. That's, like, really bullshit terminology, because the idea is that, like, oh, it was going nowhere, but it wasn't getting solved. That's not true. People were dying in this conflict, basically, like, I, I, I don't know if it was every year, but, like, regularly for the period of those 30 years. And so Azerbaijan in 2020, in invaded. They started bombing the entire region. They were able to conquer back a lot of territory. In 2022, Azerbaijan blockaded the entire region. So no food, no medicine, no fuel, no gas, nothing could get in and out, um, with the exception of occasional humanitarian transport that during which if you were a person being transported for medical transport, Azerbaijan may kidnap you, but not, not like a rogue actor. The state would kidnap these people. And so during nine months of blockade, Artsakh is on the brink of starvation. Azerbaijan starts indiscriminately shelling the entire region. The, the, the government of Artsakh surrenders. Um, now the people, yes, on September 19th of this year. Um, and so now there's a mass exodus of basically every Armenian living in Nagorno-Karabakh is trying to leave because, as they've been saying for the last 100 years, they cannot live safely under a government that hates them so much that they would behead them, 
and do all sorts of other horrible things to them. So me and Karina are here to talk about that today. Karina was actually on the ground in Armenia where all of these refugees were flooding into Armenia from the Nagorno-Karabakh region. I want to also add that like I've been talking about this so much that I think I gave a pretty sanitized version of what's happening because from like an emo- not from like a like an from an actual human perspective of what just happened in Artsakh, it was genocide. And I'm saying that up front to start with. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the genocide in Artsakh. We're talking about the ethnic cleansing of Artsakh. I want to like start by framing it through that and I don't really care what lawyers or legal think- legal thinkers like what edges of the parameters they try and tinker on and they try and say well this happened and this didn't and check their little boxes because that's not the purpose of words <laughs> and that's not the purpose of trying to like say like this is this this is what's happening to this is what's happening to these people we know it that's the framing we're going to be going with Huzzah. I yeah I I'm also putting in some notes because the 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 whole um so, so, so-called debate around the term genocide and whether it is or not. I mean, I I would also agree that it is, and it's kind of it's one of those um, ironic twists of history that it has to do once again with Armenians, uh, given the, how the term was first coined by Lemkin. For those who don't know, he was uh, he did that in reference to the 1915 Armenian genocide. I also don't care, but I had a comment on that. On I think it was on Mastodon. I don't remember. Uh, I said like uh, straight up like this is genocide. And someone commented, like, this is clearly ethnic cleansing, but can you explain why it's a genocide? And so on. And then, A, ethnic cleansing can be part of genocide, first of all, and usually are. Uh, but B, is all of the other stuff as well, the direct murders, but also the discussion of cultural heritage, which has, which has been uh, very explicit, which, again, is another thing that Rafael Lemkin himself coined in reference to, I think, that specific one was in reference to the Holocaust, but uh, as well, like, the Armenian genocide. So anyway, Karina, do you want to add? Because uh, I figured you'd have, of course, as as given that you are um, in Armenia, you can, you know, add, given that so many people have uh, in recent, what is it, weeks? So it was really this kind of lightning military operation by Azerbaijan, which started on September 19 and essentially lasted for about 24 hours. And this is a republic that, as Anna explained, had been under blockade for nine months. So the population was already malnourished, um, hadn't had a normal meal in months. Electricity, gas had been shut off. These people were cooking on wood fires outside. And then on top of that, they're basically bombed into submission. The fact that it was cut off meant that the Arzakh Defense Forces um, had a limited supply of military equipment and were not able to kind of mount a defense in the way, as a body, as literally the only body that was left um, to protect the, the Armenians of, of Artsakh, Nagorno-Karabakh. So the president of Nagorno-Karabakh signed a capitulation statement, um, basically agreeing to the disbanding of the Artsakh Defense Forces and the dissolution of state institutions. So officially from January 1st, the Republic of Nagorno-Karabakh or Artsakh will cease to exist. In light of the disbanding... As of January 1st of like 2024, you mean? 2024, yeah. Right, yeah. So okay. in light of the disbanding of the defense forces specifically, and obviously the dissolution of the state um, more secondarily, the population of Nagorno-Karabakh or Artsakh um, basically fled kind of ahead of this oncoming Azerbaijani assault. Um, what that meant was in Stepanakert, the capital of Artsakh, people moved en masse to the airport which at the time, or maybe currently still, is run by Russian peacekeeping forces, um, whose mandate is to protect the Armenians there, which they haven't done. We can talk about that later. So the Armenians, um, 40,000 actually fled to the airport to kind of wait to be let out. And in the meantime, people in the villages, in the regions, were trying to get to Stepanakert, the capital, and then onwards out somehow. And so for a couple of days, uh, neither Azerbaijan nor Russia, Russian peacekeeping forces, would allow the Armenian civilian populace, populace to leave. So they're trapped inside for a while. And I remember this is around the 23rd of September. Um, I was down in Goris, which is an Armenian city that's closest to Nagorno-Karabakh and then the kind of outflow of the refugees, which is where, you know, where they would have come out. And we got word that um, they were going to be transporting 40, sorry, I don't remember the number. It was like a a certain number of wounded soldiers, wounded servicemen. And then immediately after that, we got word that the first civilians were going to be let out. And 
that kind of the first uh, first kind of transportation of these people like came out turned into this overwhelming stream of people and as a result today um essentially the whole population of Artsakh has left and just has it's it's gone it's gone and the republic is now empty okay so this brings me to the aforementioned quotes, right? Because I, okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll thank you for a contextualizing because I think people would have heard me quote random officials and have no fucking idea what I was talking about. The UN has arrived. This is again, these are like headlines on, on, this is on The Guardian. This is from yesterday. It's a ghost town, is the quote. UN arrives in Nagorno Karabakh to find ethnic Armenians have fled. I find that amazing sentence, by the way, to find ethnic Armenians, like it was a surprise or something. We see Germany, this is roughly four hours ago, the UN statement, and Germany's statement is also four hours ago, as of the website, um, as, as it shows on the website. Germany calls for, quote-unquote, permanent international presence in Nagorno-Karabakh. And it's one of those things that, uh, and then the Red Cross, also four hours ago, Nagorno-Karabakh capital, quote-unquote, completely deserted. So we have the UN saying it's a coast town, we have the Red Cross saying completely deserted, and we have Germany saying that there should be a permanent international presence in Nagorno-Karabakh. And it's one of those things that, like, I don't want to focus too much on Germany because I don't care, but it's, it symbolizes a bit of a broader attitude, I think, that we are, have been seeing in the EU for some time now. That have to do, like, you know, we can go through, like, the geopolitical reasons and whatnot. And, you know, to some extent, I can explain some of them in the sense that I'm aware of some of them, but I'm sure some other stuff I'm not aware of. The one, the main one that comes to mind is basically Azerbaijani oil. That's kind of the easy, the easy, like uh, at least you know one of the one of the reasons uh, for the EU's decisions, and the other one being um, Russia. But what are your thoughts when you, you know, and feel free to respond however you want. But what are your thoughts to, when you read statements like this one, which again is, is symbolic of a broader trend? Uh, it's not just Germany saying so for that matter, but Germany is one of the two main ones in the EU in terms of power. What comes to your mind? White hot fucking rage. Too little, too late. We've been fucking saying this for years. Like howling into the abyss. No one fucking listened. This is also reflected in international media. For example, the New York Times, who had journalists on the fucking ground saying in their sub sub headline saying that no one saw this coming, which is just honestly embarrassing i i saw this coming i'm, I'm just some rando i'm just I'm, I'm i'm just here and i i mean sorry armenians begged the new york times to cover the blockade and they didn't they didn't send anyone and now it's a surprise and it's not just the eu and it's not just germany it's the un as you said you know the you so throughout this blockade and this humanitarian crisis that was created by the blockade and the kind of, you know, the lack of basic necessities for this civilian population, people had been advocating, not just Armenians, like, you know, human rights advocates, some um, scholars for, uh, and some international aid organizations had been pushing to be let in to the territory. But because Azerbaijan was, you know, controlling the, the only road in or out, they wouldn't allow that. And this included the UN and UNHCR. And from what I've heard from different sources, the UN could have pushed more to be let in, but because Azerbaijan doesn't want to sort of quote unquote internationalize this conflict, it wants to it wants to keep it as this kind of internal matter. It wouldn't allow this these organizations in. But now we see that since the territory has been emptied of its Armenian population and these people have been forced to flee, now they're let in. And I think what is most kind of outrageous about this is that the report that's come out of the UN is super problematic and reports that the 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 nationals who were part of this monitoring mission that was led in were from Russia, Turkey, Pakistan, Albania and Hungary, which are all allies of Baku. And so there are very legitimate fears and concerns that they wouldn't report you know, transparently about any atrocities against civilians that they might have found or evidence. 24 hours. I mean, I don't know, you know, Nagorno-Karabakh, Artsakh is a very mountainous place. There's not, you know, it's not, you can't get anywhere. Um, I mean, it, everywhere in, in that period of time. There are 
Another concern that Armenians have been voicing is the fact that during and in the aftermath of the assault on September 19, uh, connectivity was cut off. So there was no internet connection and phone connection. And a lot of the villages in the regions were completely cut off. And we don't know what's happened to a lot of people. And we were hoping for an international presence on the ground so that they could conduct search and rescue missions, collect bodies of dead servicemen, for example, um, and any living people, because there are concerns that there are still elderly and disabled Armenians hiding in their homes and there's no one to go get them. And I find that absolutely disgraceful. Sorry, you can go on now. No, I, I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, I. you mentioned, Joey, earlier that this is a, sort of an ironic twist of fate that it's happening to Armenians again in history. And that term genocide was coined to describe Armenians. I, I want to push back on that and say that it's not an ironic twist of fate. Um, it is the fact that like there is a broader purpose behind all of this violence, that the same ideology that led to the Armenian genocide was what led to the like genocide in Artsakh. It is it's not only like I just this morning I was looking at a map was a, a, like bird's eye view of the maps in Stepanakert, which the Azerbaijani authorities call Khan Kendi was released. And one of the streets was named after Enver Pasha, who was one of the three architects. He was one of the three Pashas who engineered the Armenian genocide. This is an explicit like and it's it's not just this stuff, right? Like I, I feel crazy because every goddamn year, every goddamn year, they did something insane. They killed somebody. They beheaded somebody. Something just absolutely horrific happened. And then they would say why they did it. Somebody would stand up and say it would you know, Aliyev would stand up and he would say this is to, you know, like bless the memories of our forefathers. Somebody else would say something about Taliat Pasha or bless the memory of and whatever one of the Pashas. Somebody else would say we are one nation, two states with Turkey. I mean, it wasn't even a wink and a nudge. It was it's like they would say it. They would say the quiet part out loud. They would say exactly what their intentions were, what they were informed by, what ideology was driving them. They would say exactly what you know, what their vision for this region was. And it's a region without Armenians. It is a region not only in which Armenians don't exist, but in which Armenians never existed. If you look at how they treat the history of Armenians, it, they don't erase it just to say, we've won and we're getting, you know, like, this is this is ours now, we win. They erase it to say that there were never Armenians here. You know, they they rename our cultural history. They rename Armenian churches to be Caucasian Albanian churches. I don't even have time to go into the, the in, inane, like the inane, like stupidity of that. But there is just it's day after day of just absolute and total violence. Not only like physical violence that God and I was describing, but also there the intentions of that violence were made so clear for the past hundred years, but certainly for the last three years, and even more certainly for the last thirty years. And what really kind of kills me is that the people of Artsakh declared independence to avoid this exact eventuality. Like this was the nightmare scenario. This is what they wanted to avoid. They saw the writing on the wall. They knew the government that was controlling them. And for years, they were treated like they were crazy. For years, they were treated like they were ethno-nationalists who just like couldn't, who were so like base and savage that they couldn't fathom the idea of being governed by a, like a government that was a different ethnicity than them. That's how they were being treated. That's how they were treated on the international stage. That's how they were treated in academia. I mean, the number of books I've read that reduce this to like, oh, people like Armenians just don't want to be governed by Turks or Azerbaijanis or what have you. It was astounding. And then you see the exact scenario that they were saying would play out, play out. And yet they're still treated like what like what they saw with their own eyes, what they felt on their own skin didn't happen. And that's so I, I I'm I'm beyond offended by it. I'm actually like. I'm at a loss for how people can be so completely dehumanized in their own experience. I'm I'm at a complete freaking loss. And then don't they? Yes. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, don't they say that the last stage of genocide is denial of genocide? It's denial of genocide, but it's not just denial of genocide. It's denial of our existence. It's almost like. It, it, it's like they're the invisibility is so complete. I I don't know that I, there there are I'm, I know that there are other groups that have experienced this, but I don't know that we've seen this on the scale, and I don't know that we've seen this like this accepted. 
I don't want to say it's unprecedented because the horrors of the world never like cease to like, you know, fulfill my expectations. But that being said, like there is something absolutely just stunning. Like it's beyond gas. It's gaslighting on a scale that I can't even imagine. Like you're telling people that not only like not only did we not kill you, but you 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 were never there to die. That's like that's the idea is that you were never there to die. You were never there to be erased. You have no cultural contribution. You have no historical contribution. You simply don't exist. And the international community is acting like that is acceptable. They're not just acting like it's acceptable. They're hearing it. This is actually where I wanted to kind of add, especially Europe, the EU, the way it's paved the way for this to happen and has added to the gaslighting as this kind of international authority, this like supposedly values-based power. Just today, just a couple hours ago, Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, said about the events that Russia was the one who betrayed Armenia and that Azerbaijan is still their partner. And he literally said, and I got the quote for you, he was asked something about, you know, how to, you know, how to build trust now between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And he literally said, quote, it is now up to Azerbaijan to show goodwill, good faith, to protect the rights and security of the entire population living in Azerbaijan, including the Armenian population, of which there is none left. This is Michel today. And then also today, President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, apparently in a phone call with Armenian Prime Minister Pashinyan, said, quote, the EU stands with Armenia in assisting displaced people. Yeah, it's basically accepting the status quo. That's it. They're, they're quite literally saying, like, you know, we'll send some money, food, uh, blankets or whatever. We'll send them to, to Armenia. And, and, and they hope basically that, like, uh, of, of course, Armenia also gets closer to the, to the EU and, and whatnot, because ultimately, I'm trying to rationalize. I mean, you, you know, what? It's, this is it's also kind of pointless. At the end of the day, like this is, um, I've been also kind of trying to, to raise awareness or rather raise the alarm about some of the policies of the EU in the past few years. Obviously, not by, by no means the only one. Um, and Osla von der Leyen uh, is a pretty good example of that, largely when it comes to migration stuff, which I, which I do cover on this podcast. And I interview folks from like No Borders and, and Sea Watch and other. Um, Border Violence Monitoring Network is one that I did recently because there's a lot of the way her and other folks in the EU, usually high-ranking especially, the way they talk is they talk to appease the far right, essentially. And they do this by either maybe thinking that this is the way to defeat the far right, or I don't know what the rationale is, obviously. But ultimately, what ends up happening is that the whole uh, overtone window just you know shifts a bit more towards the right every time. And this is what's happening in the EU. So for me, in addition to the the what's happening in what has happened in Artsakh being like horrific in and of itself, it's all what worries me additionally, if you want, is that it's like yet another indication of what is becoming more and more acceptable, like the normalization of this. And of course it didn't it didn't start there. And I'm talking specifically as far as the EU is concerned, let's say, or Europe is concerned, because I'm in Switzerland. And this is this really concerns me. This really is something that I I feel like the more this is normalized, uh, and I should say like I'm about to re-interview a a friend at this point, like um, Zakaria Zelalem, who's Tigrayan, who are talking about uh, obviously what's been happening in Tigray and how essentially this is something that the Ethiopian regime is becoming more and more overt about it, more and more open about it, to the extent that just yesterday I believe or two days ago they were openly opposing. The, the the nomination of the WHO director who is ethnically an ethnic Tigrayan. So just just as a as an example of like uh, in the context of kind of like the global dynamics of what's happening here and the the whole uh, BRICS 2.0 whatever the fuck that means and how it's going to lead there seems to be a greater acceptance uh, from uh, entities that are supposedly value-based and by which i mean they say that they are value-based like they are themselves those are part of their own statements the whole i forgot who it was one of the eu high ranking like you know the the eu is a garden and the rest of the world is a jungle or whatever some super something super like that but like this is what they mean right like this is this is really what they're talking about but what's kind of becoming clearer and clearer is that 
as someone who is here right now, is like you have the ins and the outs. Anyone, everyone who's in might be safe for now, and everyone who's out, damn them. And that that concerns me as someone who's here, but also obviously with what we're seeing now. Sorry, I've been rambling a bit. I, I just wanted to qualify a bit of my complaints about the EU. So I'm not just complaining about the EU and their lack of action. They actually pushed for a quote-unquote peace agreement between Armenia and Azerbaijan by the end of the year or beginning of next year, while ignoring Armenian concerns about the need for guarantees for the security of Armenian lives there and, and for international mechanisms to be kind of on the ground. So they pushed this. Meanwhile, treating Azerbaijan like a good faith partner even at, as it had violated every single point of the tripartite ceasefire agreement that ended the, the 2020 Artsakh war. And what is happening is a precedent is being set globally. And just looking at the events around Kosovo and Serbia right now, I mean, Serbia's leader Vucic has actually said publicly that he admires Ilham Aliyev, Azerbaijani president. Um, so people are watching, people are watching and they're learning and they're seeing what red lines actually can be bent and pushed and moved and, you know, how little they actually mean. Because it, international relations to a large extent, I mean, we're talking about a re very realist world, but in many ways, it's just a construct. So these red lines exist because we all agree that they exist. But once we kind of start seeing that actually maybe they don't exist, it's honestly like a free for all. and. It's terrifying. I think that there's also, like, we're talking about the EU now just because, the, like, I think the hypocrisy is kind of stunning. But I also want to, like, have, like, a little bit of, like, a, a meta conversation about the, like, analyst coverage of this, too, because there is this obsession with, like, yeah, God in that face just now. <laughs> there's this obsession and, like, it's like a, I don't know if they're, like, hypnotized or mesmerized or what by it, by, and, like, the... So the Armenian government refused to protect Azer, uh, refused to protect Artsakh or like continue to act as Artsakh's military partner in this last invasion. And there's like we can certainly talk about why that is, but like the very simple reason is because it's it's a weak fucking government and like it's weak for many different reasons. But I've noticed there's like a constant like like I get asked about this a lot too, where people are like, well, why didn't the government do anything? What and I mean, I certainly have fucking thoughts about why they didn't do anything. And I have thoughts on what they should have done and what they should have been doing for the last three years. I mean, I, I like I absolutely have some thoughts on those things. But I also just can't like like when I'm asked that question, I don't want to answer it because it's like, I mean, because because of where it's coming from. It's like this idea of like you like you're not doing anything either. Like you're not doing anything either. And neither is anyone else. And so. Like, you're not doing anything to make it easier for the Armenian government to act. You're not doing anything like, I mean, truly, you could bypass the Armenian government entirely and send aid directly to Artsakh if you really wanted to. Like, there are so many different ways to, like, think about this. And it's it's incredible, like, just like obsession with like, well, we have it, it, this has to mean something, right? Like, what does this mean for Russia? What does this mean for Russia and Ukraine? What does this like, what does this mean for like the geopolitical? I, I, I couldn't like I couldn't give less of a shit about what you, what you know these like analysts think it means for the geopolitical balance in the region or what it means for Russia or what it means for Russia and Ukraine because put simply like there's been a genocide and all everyone's interested in is having this like like is having this like ticky-tack conversation about like what political parties in Armenia contributed to it i mean for like it, it, it's 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 also like i don't know it's, it's stunning but yeah i think so also, just to go back, like the reason that we call out the EU and like the West a lot is because of that hypocrisy. But like the reality is that this was just a broader project that was allowed to go on for a really long time. So it's not it's not particularly useful to say, I mean, not, not that it's not useful. It's not particularly like new to say, well, the, you know, Europe's like like hypocritical about this or this particular European policy is contributing to the ethnic cleansing or the genocide in Artsakh. It actually, it, it actually has been like a broader issue. Like it's been a broader issue that's been underlying this conflict and also a lot of other conflicts for a long time now. Because I, what, the the thing that I keep returning to is that the Armenians have been saying the same thing. Their position hasn't changed for a hundred years now. It's never changed. It's really like there has never been a moment where Armenians said, you know, maybe maybe we could give this 
this government a try. Like, I, it, it's it's never happened. And it's not because they're so, like, savage that they can't think of it. Like, you, you don't think that if they could, they would say, I, this might, <clears throat> this is looking like it might work. This is like, th- we would rather remain in our homes. It's looking like it might work. We, we don't want to flee. Like, you don't think that they would have done that if they could have. Their position has not changed in 100 years. And instead, and, and the other thing is, neither has Turkey or Azerbaijan's position. Their positions also have not really changed for like the last hundred years. Through Soviet and current day, like an independent rule, Azerbaijan's position has pretty much remained the same. There's been rhetorical pos- changes in rhetorical positioning, but the actual policies being enacted have remained the same. So it's it's crazy to suggest that like there is it, it, that that no either that no one saw this coming or that this was like unpredictable or that this was in some way a surprise to anybody or that this wasn't part of a very like carefully laid out and enacted plan. One of the things about the focus on internal Armenian politics, kind of blaming it was evident in the immediate aftermath of this catastrophe when there were protests in Yerevan and they turned violent. And it was like watching the international media who we've been begging to cover the blockade and Armenian human rights under Azerbaijan, when they swooped in like vultures covering these violent protests. And it was just disgusting to see because it was, you could just see how easy it would be as an outsider who's maybe not familiar, who would be interested in the kind of hum- human side of this, uh, you know, genocide. Uh, but instead seeing footage of cops beating up protesters, and it was just too easy to look at that and say, oh, well, it looks like they've got their problems. You know what I mean? Like this, uh, this, this looks really messy or, or turn into some social like a cab kind of conversation, which just like wasn't fucking relevant. And also I think one of the things to remember is like moving forward. So this conflict is not over. This stage of the conflict is over, but it's been renewed. We have a whole new generation of traumatized people who've witnessed extreme violence. And Azerbaijan is now turning its sights on Armenia. And Azerbaijani troops have made a kind of major, major incursion into Armenian territory last year in September 2022. Occupy have took over some Armenian military outposts and have started kind of digging in and doing engineering works, creating new roads, coming into them. And it's in a way like, how can you expect Armenia to guarantee the security of Artsakh when it can't guarantee the security of its own citizens? And I saw that recognition of that reality among a lot of these refugees that were coming across over the last few days. I saw a bus with a sign on the front that said Alaverdi, which is a city in Armenia's north near the Georgian border. And I just kind of approached some, you know, some people were getting inside, some people from Artsakh, refugees kind of getting settled. There was a family with kids and, and a gentleman sitting in the front. I just kind of approached them and I started asking, like, why did you, you know, decide to go to Alaverdi and not some other city? And what they said was, uh, first of all, when one of them said the, the nature is like Artsakh, so I want to go somewhere that reminds me of that. But also because it's not near a Turkish or Azerbaijani border. One of the men I spoke to was from Hadrut, which was um, a majority Armenian town in Artsakh until the 2020 war was conquered by Azerbaijani forces and ethnically cleansed. So he's been di- displaced once. They moved to Stepanakert. They were displaced again in this latest round. One of his kids was three. And he's been displaced twice already. And he told me he kind of felt tricked and that he didn't want to move to another border region where that might happen again. And he would have to, you know, for a third time, kind of pick up his family and move again. Something I my fa- two sides of my family, one side of my family is from Artsakh and the other side is from the Lori region, which is where Alaverti is, which I, I don't know that like the other thing I was going to say is that now, like, there's a pretty when Karina says that Azerbaijan has turned its sights on Armenia. It's, again, something that's pretty obvious. They've been talking about a Zangezur corridor. So they've been talking about a corridor con- like going through Armenia, connecting Azerbaijan to its other, it's like enclave on the other side of Armenia, which they've already also not only ethnically cleansed of Armenians, but also of any like, trace of the existence of Armenians. They're, like just entire cemeteries bulldozed over. The world's largest collection of medieval cross stones completely bulldozed over. They want a, like a road connecting those things. That's been like an official like thing that they've asked for. The unof- on the unofficial side, you see Azerbaijani politicians constantly talking about how like these are their historic lands and how yeah they're making claims now on the territory of Armenia, calling it historic Western Azerbaijan, yeah. which isn't a th- 
It's 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 not a thing and it never was a thing. But it's interesting because they then like they do that thing where they turn to like they turn to their international sort of audience and they say, well, we're not talking about, you know, territorial claims. We're just saying that like these these idiot Armenians, they're so like they think anywhere they live, they own it, which is why they think that when we say this is our historic land, we want to own it. Never mind that they have systematically conquered every piece that they've ever called their historic land. And like it's so that's like and you see that in their messaging, you know, like globally, too. You see them make little maps of of like they show little maps of like France and, and California, which like show where the Armenians live and say, like, you know, Marseille is like historic Ar- Armenia, like at, like at, like basically implying that Armenians can't get along with any like which is, I mean, sort of funny. Um, I actually think it's like it's it's a pretty funny idea, but or that we have like revanchist kind of claims on Marseille and like Los Angeles, like guys, watch out because they're you know you're they're gonna start claiming those territories you know? just because they live. I mean, and it's I mean, it's funny because like Armenians have lived in lots of different places where they just like chill and live. There's actually like there's one really specific independence movement that existed because of a level of ethnic oppression that was not tolerable. Which isn't to say that Armenians in other areas aren't like oppressed in other ways, but they're not claiming like independence for re- like obvious reasons. Um, I actually saw a this was really funny, God, and then I saw an Instagram account that was like made to be it wasn't a, it w- was made to be like a fake Armenian account laying claim to like all these like different areas, and it was like posing as an Armenian saying this stuff, and like it was just saying like you know like Armenians should secede from all these like other regions, and it was like really obviously an Azerbaijani bot or a bot account. But the reason I bring that up is because there's like you see this dual messaging again, right? You see like the very clear, really obvious internal messaging of to their own people of we will conquer back Zangezur and Sunik. Like these, this is this is our next claim. And then you see the turn to the international audience to say, well, no, it's just about not it's not it's about the fact that we're not an ethno state and Armenia is an ethno state, which is like again absurd. But it's gonna work. That's like the even more absurd thing is that it's gonna work. They're gonna say this and. And people are just going to like debate whether or not this is actually the case. And it's astounding to me because Armenians have been right about every fucking other thing. So why wouldn't we be right about this? And that I think is like, that's, that's where this conflict is headed next. And there's like a broad fear in Armenia, which I think is really well founded that the goal for both Russia and Azerbaijan is to turn Sunik into the next Nagorno-Karabakh, into the next Artsakh. Sunik is Armenia's southern region. For your yeah. List. Thank you. Um, but yeah, so there's a there's a there's a fear that this is like the next region to be occupied or militarized or like turned into a conflict zone, basically. And I think that's a real founded fear. It's a real founded fear also because France has just opened a consulate in Sunik and they've made this um, uh, agreement, some kind of agreement on military cooperation. So between the French military and the Armenian military. So the French military is now going to be like observing Armenian military training exercises, offering kind of consulting in a consulting kind of capacity, how they can improve. Yeah. So there's like a lot of, there's a lot of obviously like military and like defense activity in Sunni for people who are like, just want to protect themselves. Um, but Azerbaijan has made claims on it. And it's like, there's a broad fear that that is the next, like that is the next place to be occupied, which would actually like, to get into the geopolitics of it a little bit, it would allow Russia to maintain a conflict in the region, which has always been Russia's interest. And it would allow the Azerbaijani government to like chip away at Armenia and Armenians piece by piece and just like continue working on their genocide project, um, which is what gives the like totally despotic and like fucking corrupt government in Azerbaijan their only source of legitimacy in Azerbaijan. Um, Because they get to say, look, we conquered back this territory. Look, like we're still conquering back this territory. Um, it's, it's very futile, but like it's also like I, I, you already see it. You already see the project unfolding of this double speak that is somehow invisible. I don't like. I, it's, it's crazy. It's, and the only conclusion I can come to is that they're not interested in hearing it. If they wanted to hear it, they'd be perfectly capable of hearing it. They've done an excellent job hearing Russia's double speak, um, and the left has done an excellent job hearing the United States' double speak. So, why is it that when it comes from the mouth of Ilham Aliyev or Erdogan, no one can acknowledge it? And part of that might be a failure of Armenians to organize on the left. Like, I, that's like, sure. But I don't know. I'm not letting other people off the hook for their own, like, moronic behavior because the victims didn't sufficiently insulate themselves from it. Until this escalation, I was of the opinion that a lot of it is our own fault, that we haven't just kind of been screaming in the right channels. Um, but I, I'm at this point, I don't want to 
I don't know. I don't know if this is like just kind of me washing my hands of, of, you know, agency or um, just being cynical, but I, I think it's not all us <laughs> and I don't, I don't know why. And I don't know. Yeah. My two cents on this is just that when I, if I compare the examples that I know of, whether it's like Palestine or Syria, let's say, or Iran, the messaging of the diasporas especially is not necessarily the same. And you might say some have been more efficient than others, like the Palestinian one has been, just also because it's, it's all things have actually just gotten worse in terms of like the actual lived experiences of people there for actually liberating, you know, the occupied territories in any me- meaningful way. Whereas with Syria, uh, the closest thing I can think of what's happening now was the 2016, uh, and you know, no, no parallels are perfect. And uh, the goal there wasn't uh, to ethnically cleanse uh, Syrians from eastern Aleppo because the Assad regime just wanted to take back Aleppo. So whoever stayed stayed under their own risk, regardless of their ethnicity. Basically, this was like a different goal, but the the methods uh, are similar enough, I think. And at the time, it was also like I remember very clearly the the mayor of eastern Aleppo, who I, I, I met last year, because he's obviously in exile, you know, going to, I think it was the parliament in France, I don't remember, like a bunch of different places across the UN, you know, receiving standing ovations and, and being like uh, applauded and all of that stuff, but rightly so in this specific, in this specific example. But that, that did not translate into anything being done uh, for Aleppo at the time. And by anything, I mean like, not even military intervention, which was like such an optimistic, like it was not going to happen anyway, for various geopolitical reasons. But I mean, like even dropping food and aid, like that did not happen. And they had the, if I, if I have this correct, like they had the legal right to do so. Like they did not need, the UN had passed a resolution and you do not need the permission of the Assad regime to, to deliver aid, for example. Uh, you can just do it. But they didn't want to do it. They want to do it for various reasons. But yeah. To, to be clear, like, whether or not they have the legal right to do, like, the, the people come up with the legal right to do, like, you have the legal right to drop aid. That's like, <laughs> that's not, uh, the, there is, there is a legal right to drop aid. And there's like so many international norms that in fact demand that you do so. So it's always interesting to me when these like things get framed. And I see it because, you know, I see it, I see it in, I see it in like international law circles, the way that some things like the same things will alternate between being framed as like rights and responsibilities, depending on like what the position on them is in that moment, because they, of course they had the legal right to drop aid. And you could name like three other like international norms that are well settled that would say they had the responsibility to drop aid. But we only we talk about one or the other based on which one, like based on what we want to do. One thing that like, I don't know, like I, I've noticed like me and Karina and Armenians in general, we're going to keep showing up and talking about this because it's one of the only things we can do. And also, like, we're going to show up in spaces like this and try and see the connections between this kind of struggle and, you know, the struggle in Palestine. Because, like, honestly, like Israel also like has perfected this like sense of doublespeak as well. Um, we're going to keep talking to these communities. But there is also an element of, like, I think a lot of Armenians have become convinced that their only hope is themselves now, which... I don't want to say that like it's true, but it is a little bit true in that like the solutions, the only solutions they have are internal. So like, and they're not the best, those, that's not, that wouldn't be the ideal way to do this. Right. But that is sort of like the only solutions that Armenians have to turn to. A lot of Armenians are turning to things like civilian defense are turning to things like training themselves about like being prepared militarily on a personal level. And to me, that's, it's, it's upsetting not because I'm like, oh, like, sucks, the liberal world order is falling apart and no one can rely on each other. Like, that's not why. But it's because it also shows that there aren't sufficient connections between, like, even str- like armed struggles in the region that they can support e- they can support themselves and each other when they're fighting the same shit. Like, this is really the same shit that was affecting Yazidis. It was the same reason the Kurds don't have a state anymore. And so that is something where I like take I take responsibility and look at us because we you know we had a state for we've had a state for thirty years since the fall of the Soviet Union, um, and that state could have been a place where all of the different people who were oppressed by Pan Turkism, by Turkish imperialism, and by Azerbaijani you know their own brand of Pan Turkism and Azerbaijani nationalism that that state could have been an organ like a, a a place where those groups could come together. It could have been like like for a variety of reasons 
neither the state became that nor did like and it's 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 really heartbreaking to see the effectiveness of the Turkish like divide and conquer campaign over the years because we're sort of cut away from all of these natural alliances and even from some of the alliances that are less natural but like necessary and also like we like we should have been there so that's not it's less an area where I blame us and more an area where I think like it's it's hard to see it like globally that that's where a lot of things are and I have to be honest like I don't have a lot more like I don't have I don't have more to say or like much more of like a I, I have no more to offer an international audience I have no more to offer like even well-meaning listeners at this point because like I don't know like Gadi and I are in a group chat and she and a different friend of ours were both on the ground in Goris and Kornizor which was the point through which all the refugees were flooding and the reality of like talking about that and seeing that update and the reality that like I don't know how to convey that minute by minute trauma that these people went through and then the like much smaller the minuscule amount of trauma that was inflicted on the rest of the Armenian community by minute by minute second by second witnessing that and when I say it was minuscule I mean in a in relative terms because we're all like in, we're all fucked up now <laughs> I just I don't know how to convey that I it's it's horrific it's been shit it's been like it's been insane and that's all I can really offer and at some point I do like I think that like like until we get past that point, we're never going to have a conversation about like, well, how do we form natural alliances? Like we at some point we have to get past this and I'm waiting and I'm trying to get past that point of this, like the, this earlier conversation that we've had. I'm trying to get past the point of invisibility enough to go forward. And that's, I think, what's so frustrating is that we're constantly just trying to get past the point of invisibility to have a conversation about what can we like, what can we do next? And I expect this from, you know, like Western powers expect from Europe. I expect it from Russia. Like, but it's it's really hard when you're also hitting that wall um, in like progressive spaces and also in like even in like NGO organizing. I mean, I've been to, I, I, I've been trying to convince like a refugee organizations that they should be involved and they all have some reason not to be. And I just like. What is this chokehold? And at what point can we like ask people to break out of their own like being mesmerized by the complexity of the problem and like just start organizing? Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't mean to just be like, you know, despondent, but it's at some point I'm like, I, how do we get past? Like, this is like, I, I don't know. We've been on your podcast twice and both times we've kind of been saying the same thing um, with more details about different events, but like should stay the same. Complexity is an interesting term, I think, even in this context, because ultimately no quote-unquote conflict, and I'm, these are like huge quotations, are uh, devoid of complexity. No, no, again, quote-unquote conflict, and this is like a huge, in, you know, bunny ears. Uh, conflict is devoid of complexity, uh, like Israel-Palestine is complex. I mean, as in, it's not simple, sure, but it's not... It's not complex in the sense that it is. It can't be understood, and it's not even complex in the sense that it is very difficult to understand. It's like you know, moderately difficult to understand. Let's say even maybe not even that. And things that are also things that are complicated get resolved in one way or another, or at least get tackled in one way or another, if there is some kind of will slash resources, political resources deployed to do so. The troubles in Northern Ireland were complicated as fuck. Still are. I mean, as in Northern Ireland, they're still complicated. More so, if not as much, you know, as the civil war in Lebanon or whatever. But it also has to do with, like, the the fate of Northern Ireland and of the Republic of Ireland was seen as, like, important. As in, it was seen as something to, like, we need to do something. Or, you know, we are involved, maybe, and you have a lot of mea culpas, and you have a lot of, like, you know, Brits... Uh, Reevaluating their relationship to the island of Ireland, you know, all of that stuff. And to this day, uh, I know, for example, that not to be too geopoliticsy about it, like Biden still talks about the the troubles and the 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 Good Friday Agreement and all of that stuff is like one of the achievements of the '90s or whatever. But they wouldn't like th that kind of rhetoric is not available. Or at least it's not deployed in the same way when they talk about the Dayton Agreement on Bosnia. Even though, like, it was, you know, also related, the West was involved and blah, blah, blah. But the fate of Bosnia 
the fate of Bosnians after the Bosnian genocide was not seen and still isn't to this day as in the same kind of world, if you want, as the Troubles. They're not quote-unquote in the West. There is this kind of bracketing in some sense of what counts as part of history, maybe kind of like a part of the West or the global North or whatever. And then everything that isn't there can be endlessly rendered more complicated, like talked about as if they are, as if they, it is more complicated than it actually is. Like last time we joked about this, uh, talking about that Gilmore Girl episode about uh, Israel, Palestine, all of that stuff. And the explanation that was given in that class makes the act- makes it so much more complicated than it actually was, than it actually is. Because it's, it's, it's about like making it more abstract and making it almost like more, I don't know, like eternal, like there's something, uh, the essence of like, I don't know, Israelis and Palestinians or Jews and Arabs or Azerbaijanis and Armenians. There's something like purely, like it's just there. It's just a thing that, that everyone's born with. Yeah, it's like taken for granted. Actually, I got in a kind of argument with a, a, a former friend who is a journalist and has focused on the region a lot. So he should have known better. So he wasn't just like a complete outsider kind of parachuting in and, you know, figuring it out. In the 2020 war, he went completely silent, didn't make any kind of statements about anything. And it really upset me as someone, you know, who has, I've hosted in my home, et cetera. And he completely misunderstood what I was saying. I told him that he was too quiet and he was like, well, you know, I can't take a side. And I was blown away that that's what he thought I was asking. And I was like, I'm asking you to condemn the violence. Like civilians are being killed. That's it's as simple as it gets. And he couldn't make, he couldn't take that position. And I found it to be so emblematic of this kind of spinelessness and lack of curiosity and lack of critical thinking when it comes to kind of lesser known conflicts or um, people who are more peripheral to, you know, the, the power centers of Europe and North America. Yeah, I knew, um, I know someone, also I would say a former friend who, because I just never addressed this, who visited Baku during the blockade. And that was someone I'd spoken to about this, you know, like who, I, I was, I was stunned. You, you like, I, it was an ongoing blockade. There was, there was no, there was no food coming into Artsakh. People were like, like surviving off of subsistence farming i farmers were getting shot at and the other thing is i mean like and even more incredibly like not even more incredibly actually less incredibly but like the like you don't have a like if you, you live in new york city or you live in a city you don't have a farm so like it's just like there was no food in Artsakh, and this person was visiting baku and like i was I, it was just it was astounding it was crazy to me visiting baku and saying nothing it was really i was just it was i like i'm still kind of like floored by it the effectiveness of that like invisibility has made me really like I, I don't have an answer for what the like how you break out of that because it is really intense um and azerbaijan's and turkey's like that project has been very effective but i also think that like it's time that we start demanding more of like our own communities too. And like Armenians do this on kind of like a micro level when they sort of like demand to be acknowledged as Armenian in every interaction that you have with them. So you're going to do that. But also there's like a lot of other stuff where like I I really do want to like I really want people who study the Middle East, who study the Soviet Union to look at their work and to look at their projects and think and like the 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 circles that they're talking about and ask themselves like are Armenians being addressed here and not treat it like that's like some like niche like little like issue that like well why would we address them because i'm sick of it i'm so fucking sick of it like the the degree to which armenians have been erased from their place and all of these stories and all these histories is un is unfathomable and like it's it's vast and so if you are working in these areas if you're an advocate in these areas if you're working with clients from the soviet union if you're working or the former soviet union if you're studying the soviet union if you're studying turkey if you're studying the middle east you should be asking yourselves why aren't armenians showing up in the work that i'm doing because if they're not you're doing something wrong and that, like, that I think is, like, something I've, be- I've begun to take more seriously now because I see it everywhere. And, you know, I see it in legal circles, too, where, like, there's a sense that, like, well, this is, like, this conflict is separate. Like, I, I would bring this, I think I mentioned this before, but I'd bring this conflict up in class and it wouldn't be discussed. Like, the professors couldn't talk about it. They couldn't, they couldn't wrap their brain around the idea that there was something to be learned from this conflict or from these people um, or from their advocacy. 
like you couldn't you couldn't you couldn't talk about it. You could talk about Palestine was at the point where like there was something to be learned from it. But Armenia are like Armenia was not. And that's like, I think, a starting point for me of like, if you're if you're an organization that is involved in any of these areas, you should have Armenian people involved or you should have Armenian stories involved in some way. Um, that's one starting point, I would say, for everyone else broadly listening. The only last thing I ha- like I have to ask if you want is more or m- more like asking you to have some, you know, final thoughts to wrap up this episode uh, at the pace that you want, really. Are there certain aspects of this conversation you want us to get more into maybe that we can pin this and, you know, get talk about it some other time? And if you have, uh, you don't have to have them on the spot, you can tell me later and I'll put them in the description, like where people can actually go to places to donate, for example, support, uh, read, uh, share or whatever. Because ultimately, like listeners of a podcast, that's kind of the the fastest thing that they, they can do. Uh, not that this should stop at that, obviously, but more like being the first thing of of, of many steps, maybe. Uh, so yeah, uh, go ahead if you want uh, and have some, you know, reflections if you want as well. And we'll we'll leave it at that for now. I think the scale of the tragedy and the grief will become more apparent in the coming months. Um, I was on the ground and I'm still kind of I'm I'm I feel fine, but I must not be because what I saw was not not good. It was traumatic. Um, seeing the scale of that kind of helplessness um, of of civilians who've been who are arriving honestly malnourished, um, often on the top of like open top trucks um, for thirty six hours, often under the rain, um, elderly people, children, and I don't know. I don't. I can't really. I mean, I can like, you know, I can, with my friends, I can talk about little things here and there that I saw that was like interesting or, you know, shocking or whatever, but like as a whole, I can't really talk about it because I I don't know how yet. I'm sure that'll come with time, but um, in terms of helping, there are a couple of organizations I I think Anna will um, add on if I've forgotten anything, but one of the main ones I want to mention is this organization called All for Armenia. And um, I'll put, I'll give you the link to that as well. So you can um, uh, post it. But they, I saw them. They were on the ground. They were often in places where even the, the Red Cross wasn't. Um, for example, the cars, when they were coming in, they were packaging kind of sandwiches and boxes of juice and candy and just kind of throwing them into the cars as they were driving by. And this is often the first food that these people are getting. And this was a local organization, not the fucking empty-ass UN tent that I saw. It was fucking empty inside for the Red Cross, which was doing some stuff on the ground. I, I can't say they weren't, but... Um, yeah, all for Armenia, definitely. Yeah, I would say all for Armenia as well. Um, there's the, I'll send these, there's the Anna Astvatsurian Turkot Foundation, which was um, making baby boxes for babies born in Artsakh before the blockade. Um, if I'm correct, I think they managed to even send something like during the blockade. I might be wrong about that, but uh, it's it's a pretty effective group. And I think they're going to be putting together some longer term plans. Also, their volunteers were all in Artsakh. So right now they're working on supporting their own volunteers. Um, you can through an organization called Miasin, you can fund an at like a displaced family, which is also something I highly recommend. If you have like a hundred dollars of disposable income in your life, that is really useful money to these people. I also think it's an important form of mutual aid. Um, because, and I really do believe this: these people were protecting not just the security of Armenia, but they were the literal front line for the violence that Azerbaijan is about to like unleash starting with Armenia but really on like non-Azerbaijanis on on the like on the on those who stand in the way of the state project um that's like and I don't actually know what I I said that incorrectly I don't know what form that identity is going to take in its entirety because that state project isn't even complete and they're going to have to turn their sights on more and more people to like be able to maintain that project um so yeah I think we owe it to these people I think we owe it to each other um, and the last thing I'll say is, if you want to know what's going on, follow Armenian news sources. There are English Armenian news sources, CivilNet English, um, read EVN Report, Godina writes excellent, excellent, excellent articles for them. Um, but stop, like, just follow, like, follow Armenian news sources. You're going to get more information. You're going to actually know what the hell's going on. Because the other thing that's really hard is if you read, if you read, like, non-Armenian language news on this, it's almost, like, difficult to know what the basic facts of what the fuck is happening are. Like, they, it's, it's just bizarre sentences after bizarre sentences you wouldn't know like you, you wouldn't understand what the hell happened so follow our media news sources civil net english is a great source evn report um 
het has an as an investigative uh space that has um english language reporting as well but there's this more long, like sort of long long form pieces um yeah that's my advice thank you i'll add all of those to the description i'll send them to me in a bit okay kind of i know thanks for coming on again yeah, unf- unfortunately it's for this topic thank you joey for always always having us thank you for giving us a platform and giving these events a platform honestly thanks and not for the first time yeah that's one of the few people not for the first time Defy These Times is hosted by myself, Joey Ayou. I am also its producer, researcher, writer, and sound editor. If you want to help turn this project into a full-time job, please head out to patreon.com slash times to support it. These episodes are part of a bigger project, which includes resources, a newsletter, and eventually YouTube video essays as well. As always, thank you for listening and take care.